0: Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the medical historian Lindsay Fitzharris, whose new book is The Facemaker One Surgeon's Battle to Mend the Disfigured Soldiers of World War I. It's a fascinating and often grisly and traumatizing area of medical history. Lindsay, what sent you down this particular rabbit hole?
1: Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. You know what, Sam? I asked myself that many times as I was writing this book. This took about five years to research and write. And my first book, The Butchering Art, was about a Victorian surgeon named Joseph Lister, whom some people know through the the fame of Listerine, which he didn't create. Actually, it was named for him, but not by him. And I decided to venture into the 20th century, which is a medical historian I had never done. So I didn't actually know that much about Harold Gillies, the pioneering surgeon who rebuilt soldiers' faces during the First World War. And I didn't even know that much about the First World War. But I knew that there was a really harrowing story there that needed to be told in a bigger way. And I really wanted to set out and throw the readers into the midst of the battle right off the start. And so I came across this diary of a soldier named Private Percy Clare who gets shot in the face in 1917, and he wrote this extraordinary diary about his experiences. And so that's where the story really starts. And we check in with him periodically throughout The Face Maker. He gets sent to the wrong hospital. There's various challenges along the way. and So I wanted people to really experience those challenges through the eyes of someone who actually experienced them himself.
0: That's interesting. I was going to ask how you found Percy Stanley, because he he is a sort of thread that provides a kind of through line in there. And a bit of me was thinking, I wonder whether she wrote this book and then an editor said... You need one story that's going to tie
1: it together.
0: (laughs) You started with him.
1: I started with it. So, you know, I have a PhD in the history of science and medicine from Oxford, but these days I call myself a storyteller. So I'm always looking for the pulse of a story. I also write narrative nonfiction. So that means that the story reads like a novel, even though it's 100% true. So if you're listening and you don't really like history or you don't have much knowledge about medicine, you don't have to worry. This book is, you don't you don't need to come to it with any kind of technical knowledge. But I knew I, I wanted to start with someone, a soldier who had been injured. And that was actually a challenge because a lot of these men didn't write extensively about their experiences. Maybe they would write a letter here and there. But to find someone who had written so extensively as Percy Clare was, was wonderful. He did present some challenges, though, as a storyteller because he does get injured in 1917. So the prologue opens with that sort of harrowing scene of him on the battlefield. And then I had to dial the story back in the first chapter to just before the war begins to give people context of who Harold Gillies the surgeon was, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So there were some challenges to Percy Clare, but overall his diary was fantastic discovery for me.
0: Well, let's start on the battlefield, because one of the kind of propositions you set up very early on, and you set it out quite starkly, is you say, you know, there's almost a kind of arms race where... Our ability to inflict injuries was massively outpacing our ability to fix them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There were so many advances in artillery and weaponry at this time that a company of just 300 men in 1914 could deploy equivalent firepower as a 60,000-strong army during the Napoleonic Wars. There were so many ghastly inventions. There was the flamethrower, which belched forth fire that destroyed everything in its place. There were tanks, which left crews susceptible to new kinds of injuries that had never been seen in previous wars. And of course, there were chemical weapons. Even as gas masks were being rushed to the front, these lethal gas attacks became instantly synonymous with the savagery of the First World War. Men were burned, they were maimed, they were gassed. Some were even kicked in the face by horses. Before the war was over 280,000 men from France, Britain, and Germany alone would suffer some form of facial trauma. And this facial trauma was not,
0: if you (laughs) look, was not the face of the war. I mean,
1: Mm.
0: you you talk a bit, and it's a sort of thread of the book, that facial trauma was a very special sort of injury, not only in terms of its sort of psychological effects on the people who suffered it, but in terms of how, if you like, the authorities didn't kind of want that to be something that sort of came out or you know that it would damage yes. morale that you know these people were sort of hidden victims of the war in some sense
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I often say that this was a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster to a society that was largely intolerant of facial differences. And, you know, I give some context to why there was these biases against these kind of facial wounds. And it goes back hundreds of years. You know, facial disfigurement is associated with diseases such as syphilis, in which you get something called saddle nose, the nose caves into the face. It's associated with criminality because in certain periods of time people were purposely disfigured for certain crimes. So all of that carries on. It's very alive on the eve of the First World War. And so a lot of these men, as you say, it was a very isolating experience. It was really seen as the worst of the worst kinds of injuries. In fact, it was one of few injuries that warranted a full pension at this time. And so not only were they facing physical challenges of the injuries to their face, but they were facing these psychological challenges, as well as these societal challenges. And that's really what Carol Gillies is able to do. He doesn't just mend their broken faces, but also their broken spirits.
0: Yeah. Now, there are a series of of little advances that, you know, before we get to Gillies, I mean, for instance, I was kind of fascinated by, you you know, you're you're placing your character, Percy Clare, on the battlefield, and the sort of, Battlefield charge, and either how they actually carry them off—oh,
1: yes—makes a huge
0: difference. A, <laughs> a lovely little anecdote of how they discovered, you know, how not to kill the facially injured while rescuing them from the battlefield.
1: Yeah, it was awful. I mean, this was one of the shocking things that I learned as well. So. A lot of times these men were just left on the battlefield. There's a man named Private Walter Ashworth who lays on the battlefield for three whole days, unable to scream for help because he's lost part of his jaw. And it seems crazy to us that you could lay on a battlefield for three whole days and not be rescued. But you have to remember that the moment that a stretcher bearer stepped onto the field, he became a target himself. So they were making instant decisions about who lived and who died. And because the face is very vascular, it bleeds a lot, anybody who's gotten even a minor cut on their face will know this you <sighs> It tends to look very ghastly. And so these stretcher bearers were just leaving these men behind because they didn't really think that these men could survive. The other challenge, as you say, was the fact that a lot of well meaning medics would place these men on their backs, on the stretchers, and they would end up drowning in their own blood because, again, it was very vascular, or they would end up choking on their tongues because they were missing certain kind of anatomy that held their tongues into a normal position. So it's only a little bit later in the war that the advice is then given that these men, if they they were taken off the field, they should be placed face forward down with their heads hanging over the stretcher. So that's ended up saving a lot of these men's lives.
0: Now let's introduce Gillies because he's a, you know, he, he's rather kind of fascinating and, and likable character is one of the things that's, that yeah. comes through. And I guess that you liked him.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was great to actually write about someone who had such character to him. You know, with the butchering art, Joseph Lister, he was a Quaker, he was a Victorian surgeon. There was a there was a sense of, you know, kind of this straight laced figure, and it was hard to get to who he really was, also because of the nature of the way the Victorians wrote about each other. But Harold Gillies was really a character. He was a bit of a prankster. He was a champion golfer. He had this alternative persona that he would dress up in as, as Dr. Scroggie, he would call himself, and he would go onto the wards and he would bring champagne and oysters and he'd gamble with the men, all the things that were technically banned in these hospitals. And so he really was able to lift these men's spirits. And he had a bit of a gallows humor, too, which I think a lot of surgeons, especially Especially trauma surgeons working in war would have to have really.
0: What was it that sort of set him on his path? I mean, he's obviously a character of extraordinary fastidiousness and determination. You know, he was he was real sort of perfectionist, and he. There's a sense that he's rather than just being an exemplar of of you know, the cutting edge of facial reconstruction surgery, he kind of made this whole idea of trying to reconstruct faces happen and figured out the techniques and traveled to learn them how. What, what, how did he how, put this whole thing together? How did
1: it happen? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's such an extraordinary story. And when you think about this as a time before antibiotics, what he was able to achieve is, is really astonishing. Harold Gillies went into the war as an ENT surgeon. He volunteered with the Red Cross. And crucially, he comes across this character in France named Vladier, Charles Vladier. He was this French-American dentist. He was bigger than life. He's one of my favorite people featured in The Facemaker. He had a Rolls-Royce, which he retrofitted Fitted with a dental chair, and he drove it to the front under a hail of bullets. I mean, this guy was a legend, and he worked entirely free for the war. And it was really Vladier who shows a young Harold Gillies this desperate need for facial reconstruction near the front and very crucially also teaches him the importance of dentistry when rebuilding a face. This becomes so important because a lot of other surgeons working at this time were working solo. They weren't necessarily working in collaboration with other kinds of technicians and artists and medical practitioners, which is what what Gillie's ultimately does. You know, plastic surgery does predate the First World War. In fact, the term plastic surgery is coined in 1798. And at the time, plastic meant something that you could shape or mold. So in this case, a patient's skin or soft tissue, that's what plastic surgery means. But attempts at restructuring a face really focused on small areas such as the ears or the nose. So you really don't get this kind of wholesale restructuring of the face. You get a bit of it during the American Civil War, but you really see it happening in the First World War. And that's why plastic surgery enters this whole new modern era under Gillies. And what were these
0: techniques? I mean, I think you say in the book that one of the kind of crucial ones was that he realized you have to fix the architecture, you know, the bone structure, the stuff underneath, you know, you can't simply kind of pull the skin closed and have a knot and
1: Right, absolutely. And so in the American Civil War, there was some plastic surgery going on, again, because of the injuries. Those plastic surgeons, or those, sur- I should say surgeons, they weren't really plastic surgeons, they didn't really care about the aesthetics. They were really concerned about restoring function, so making sure the patient could eat or speak, but they didn't go beyond that. And there was a good reason. They, there wasn't the wholesale adoption of germ theory at this time. Infection rates could be quite high. But what Gillies learns is that when something looks, quote, normal, it also functions normally. So he, combines aesthetics with function, and he's able to do a lot more than previous surgeons were able to achieve because of that. There's a lot of, you know, techniques that he brings forward from earlier periods, such as flaps and grafts. And so I don't want to get too technical. And again, I don't want to scare people because the face maker isn't very technical, but if you think of grafts as the salami of plastic surgery, it tends to be like a thin piece of meat, whereas a flap is like the stakes of plastic surgery. It's a bigger piece of tissue. So when someone loses their nose, for instance, and there's a lot of damage to the face, you're going to need to use a flap because you're going to need a bigger piece of tissue to reconstruct the face. So he uses various techniques and he improves upon these techniques. And he's also working with dental surgeons, which is crucial, as I said, because they're working on the hard structures while he's working on the soft structures and with these hard i mean i think some of
0: these techniques i don't we have a i hope uh, intelligent and curious listenership who I, I you know i don't think will be put off by the odd bit of detail but the details some of the heart of it mm. i mean what these techniques were for instance you talk about how they learned to kind of reconstruct the bone of jaws, and I think this is one of Vladier's things, how did they they sort of do that? They almost kind of grew it back somehow.
1: Yeah, so Vladier was doing uh, distraction osteogenesis, which is extraordinary because it really, we don't see this being used in dentistry until the 1990s, so he's way ahead of his time. And what he's doing is he's sort of stretching the bone to encourage the in-between bits that are missing of the bone to regrow. And again, he, he's using bone grafts, he's using this technique, and he's able to really rebuild that hard structure underneath so that surgeons like Harold Gillies can rebuild the soft structures overlaying it. And this is extraordinary at the time. And again, before antibiotics, it's really mind-blowing.
0: And it's extraordinary the, the number of operations that would take place. I think you, there's one character you mentioned, Mr. Beldam, mm. who undergoes something like 40...
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Separate operations.
1: Yeah, so a lot of these men underwent multiple operations, you say, sometimes, you know, upwards of 40 or 50 operations over many years, sometimes even over a decade. And we have to remember also that Gillies was going far beyond restoring function. He was trying to make a face... Socially acceptable by the standards of its day. So he is very much a product of the facial biases of the day. You know, arguably, if people could have accepted these men with these injuries, they wouldn't have had to undergo so many painful operations. But a lot of them did undergo these operations so that they could blend back into society. Sometimes these men didn't want to undergo those operations, so they would turn to mass makers. A lot of people listening will know the, character, the fictional character Richard Harrow in Boardwalk Empire, who wears one of these prosthetics. And they're extraordinary. They look amazing. You know, when you see them in still photographs they especially look realistic but you have to remember that if you were sitting across from someone wearing one of these tin masks it could be unsettling it doesn't react like a face it doesn't age it's fragile it's it's uncomfortable to wear over an injury and for all of these reasons it didn't really offer those long-term solutions that many of these men were seeking so ultimately they did turn to surgeons like Harold Gillies
0: were these masks effectively what came first
1: well they were I mean, sur-
0: before we had reconstructive surgery we had I mean, some of them made by sculptors, you know, extraordinarily ingenious themselves as a sort of side note, in it, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they were beautiful. There was a a sculptor named Anna Coleman Ladd who had a studio in Paris. If you Google, these images come up. Some of them are featured in the face maker as well. And as you say, they were really pieces of art. They were happening simultaneously with what Gillies and other surgeons were doing. In fact, Gillies even employs mask makers himself. He kind of hates the mask because they remind him of the limitations of of his own craft at the time. But he does see them as sort of a necessary evil. So for instance, when a patient is recovering or recuperating between surgeries, he might want to wear one of these masks to go out into public. One of the soldiers featured in The Face Maker does that very thing while he's at the hospital. He would go out into London and he'd wear one of these masks. And sometimes it would be too hot, be too uncomfortable, so he would take it off. And when he came back to the hospital, he would hold up one, two, three, or four fingers to show how many people fainted or reacted negatively to his face. So I always remind people that although these masks are intriguing to us, we have to remember that these men were wearing it for you so that you would feel comfortable looking at them. They weren't wearing it for themselves because it would have been uncomfortable to wear. And I think that bears out in Boardwalk Empire as well with that character, Richard Harrow, because there is a scene where he takes off the mask and a child gets very frightened and the parents you know, sort of react negatively to him taking this mask off.
0: Yeah. That's the thing of the going out in public. I mean, as you say, so Gillies, and he seems to be the driving force behind this, sets up this specialist hospital where they're, they're concentrating on these particular surgeries they're getting the right specialist in they you know and the first one I think is an older shot, and then mm-hmm. moves to the SIDCUP to this Queen's hospital particularly in the SIDCUP instance you say that they they kind of provided a way of sort of hiving the population off you know like warning the general public against that's right coming anywhere near
1: yeah, so, so Gillies initially sets up a specialty unit after he meets Vladdy in France. He goes back to London. He petitions to open the specialty unit at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Alershot. But eventually, during the Battle of the Somme, he's so overwhelmed by the number of men needing his care that he establishes the first ever hospital dedicated to facial reconstruction, which is the Queen's Hospital in Sidcup. And as you say, you know, when these men would leave the hospital grounds, they were forced to sit on brightly painted blue benches so that the public knew not to look at them. This was, again, such a Isolating experience, these men were referred to as the loneliest Tommies. It really is a testament to Gilly's work, as well as the work of others at his hospital, that they rehabilitated these men and that there was a sense of community. Because if you were facially injured and you were sent to the Queen's Hospital, everybody at the hospital had the same kind of injury. So you might not feel that self-conscious. Whereas if you were sent to a general hospital, you might feel a bit shy. You might not participate in activities there. So there really was a sense of community at the Queen's Hospital that Gillies was able to facilitate.
0: Another kind of peculiar thing that will strike, I think, you know, lay people like me is peculiar, is that art, not only in the making of these masks, but, you know, serious artists were kind of on the team. I mean, the, the character who's most mentioned of it is is very distinguished you know, it goes on to be the head of the slate henry tonks tell me yes. how tonks gets involved and why oh, you know I what's love his this. role
1: yeah you know i was speaking at the chalk valley history festival recently and uh, older man came up to me and he asked me to sign his book to Henry Tonks's great nephew. And it was just, it's it's lovely because, you know, I've just come off this U.S. book tour. As everybody can hear, I'm American, but I've lived here for 20 years. And it's really fun to compare that experience to going through Britain because a lot of people have personal connections to these stories. And that's been a real joy for me. So Henry Tonks was an artist in his own right at the start of the First World War. He also was a trained doctor. And so when he originally Volunteers, he volunteers with the Red Cross in a medical capacity. He's older at the time, so he can't fight. He feels rather useless as a doctor because he's an artist. His skills have kind of gone into the background. And eventually he comes into contact with Harold Gillies. Now, at this point, Gillies recognizes the revolutionary nature of what he's doing, and he realizes that he needs a pictorial. Record of this work so that it can be duplicated by other surgeons. So Henry Tonks comes on board as part of his team, he goes into the operating theater, he draws diagrams of what Gillies is doing, and he also makes these incredible portraits of the soldiers that are more human than even the black and white photographs that are featured in the Facemaker. Now, the reason I didn't include Tonks's portraits is they I really felt that they had to be replicated in color, and that drives up the cost of a book. But if you Google Henry Tonks in World War One, these beautiful portraits will come up. And they're important, too, because he can capture them in color at this time. He can show the, the lurid you know, greens and blues of the bruising. And this is just so important. And so he and the other artists working with Gillies really help these surgeons like Gillies visualize their work in a way that would have been impossible otherwise. I think plastic surgery especially is both a medical and scientific pursuit, but also a creative pursuit. And that really shows at the Queen's Hospital.
0: Did Dogs have, uh, have a sort of input at all into? I mean, was he simply there recording, or would he occasionally say to get you know, I? could look yeah. like this. It should look
1: like this. You know? well, yeah, I think that in the sense that they would create these casts of the men's faces. And so Tonks would be helping with that. And what Gillies and the other surgeons there could do is they could work off these casts before they went into the operating room. And so I'm sure that there was an element of the artist helping to guide the work of Gillies and vice versa. Gillies was also a competent artist himself. And from my point of view, my husband, Adrian Teal, is one of the head caricaturists at Spinning Image. And this became very useful writing this book because he would read the case notes and he would draw not draw it out in a funny caricature way, but he would draw it out for me so I could visualize what Gillies was doing because it was extremely complicated to translate these case notes into something that was accessible and understandable to a general audience. So that also weirdly helped me, having an artist in the house being able to help me visualize what Gillies was able to do as well.
0: And get back to what Gillies was doing. I mean, you've got one description of one of the pieces of surgery where someone comes in and sees an entire face sort of drawn on somebody's chest. And they've got a, a kind of knob of bone on their shoulder or under yes. the skin of their shoulder. I mean I know how does that work? <laughs> and I was like He's, he's drawing the face on the chest. Is that just for reference or for practice? But no, he's right. going to lift it off, isn't it?
1: It's incredible. So the, yeah, one of the scenes in in a later chapter in The Facemaker is a journalist named Harold Begbie goes in to, to witness one of these operations. And what Gillies has done is he's drawn sort of a diagram of the face because he's going to lift that flap of skin from the chest up onto the face to reconstruct it. It is mind boggling to think that not only you can do that, but that the body can then recover from it because, of course, you're moving a lot of tissue from one area to the next. One of Gilly's inventions was something called a tubed pedicle. It was basically a flap. Again, so the flap remains attached to the blood supply on one side, but it would also traditionally remain open so it could get infected. So what he does is he stitches it into a cylinder like an elephant's trunk. And so that way, all of that important tissue is encased in the skin. And he'll leave it attached to one side. So if you're taking a tubed pedicle from the thigh, you leave it attached on one side to the thigh, let's say you move it up to the abdomen. Once it attaches to the abdomen, you sever it at the thigh, you flip it over on its side and you move it up to the chest and so forth and so on. So you can waltz these tubed pedicles up to the face to rebuild the tissue and the missing structure there. So it was it was incredible how he came up with this. And so again, there's there...
0: a permanent blood connection. So there's exactly. no depressive.
1: Yes, exactly. So you had the blood connection all the way through. So to figure this out without any textbooks to guide him was extraordinary. But I have to say that this book, as much as it is about one man, the face maker, Harold Gillies. It's about many men. It's about the disfigured soldiers. It's about the people that Gillies worked with. He brought in the artists like Henry Tonks. He brought in x-ray technicians, dental surgeons, all kinds of people working together collaboratively towards rebuilding these soldiers' faces.
0: This two pedicle thing, I mean, you say, you know, this is a collaborative or a a multi-person story. This is a kind of extraordinary footnote. (laughs) of you know, everybody seems to have invented the tube pedicle light bulb simultaneously. Right. <laughs> <laughs> kind of That's true. Bitter, I, know. You know, I got their first argument, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I love this actually. As, as a medical historian, this is always fascinating, the kind of arguments that erupt around who actually invented something. And, you know, medicine's complicated because, you know, unlike other sectors where you might actually benefit financially from an invention, you don't necessarily do that in medicine because there's that would compromise the, the ethics and integrity of medicine. So, A lot of doctors end up becoming very proprietorial over what they say they invented at this time because their names become attached to it. So the tubed pedicle, there was another surgeon at the Queens Hospital who later claims that he was the first to do it. I've gone through the case notes and and everything, and I, I can say pretty clearly that Gillies was the first to do it. But there were other surgeons, as you say, separate outside of the Queen's Hospital who were also coming up with the tubed pedicle. So it's one of those things that isn't really revolutionary in medicine. It's sort of evolutionary. It's something that arises out of great need. There was a lot of men requiring facial reconstruction during the First World War. So it's not hugely surprising that other surgeons were coming up with very similar solutions in different countries. Yeah. The other
0: discovery, I promise we'll get off the, the, the <laughs> techni- technical stuff, but I'm sort of fascinated by the technical stuff because it's one of the things that seems so miraculous about this book that, you know, as you say, before we really had most of the modern techniques, they were creating these things on the fly... The epithelial outlay.
1: Oh, gosh. I was dreading it, Sam. I was dreading you asking this question because, you know, it's funny. You know, I had a lot of various experts read the manuscript before it went to print. And I had some surgeons at Cambridge read it because, again, it can get technical. I wanted to make sure the language was right. Just before the book went into production, my editor asked me a question. So let me explain. What happened was there was a sailor named Vicarage who was severely burned during the Battle of Jutland. He is actually the first to receive the two pedicle, but also in the process of being burned, he loses his eyelids. And this really haunts Gillies that this man can't close his eyes to the horror that he's seen. And so he's trying to come up with a solution. And so he adapts a surgical technique called the epithelial outlay, and he reverses that to create these eyelids. But as the book was going into production, my editor said to me, how do they move up and down? <laughs> and I, I, it was like a two-week rabbit hole that I had to sort of figure out and consult with surgeons about how did these eyelids that he created eventually operate just like eyelids and move up and down. But yes, it is another technique, again, that was adapted from another technique that another surgeon had created. But that was where Gilly's strength was. He could take these older techniques and he could adapt them to the needs of today uh, during the First World War. You know, as
0: you've said, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of operations done on many of these, these wounded men. Who was paying for it? I mean, presumably the war office, but this must have, I mean, did it consume a titanic amount of of the war budget. I mean,
1: it's a really good question. You know, someone else also asked me this. I don't really deal head on with this in the book, but of course as you say the war office was funding some of this. There was also a lot of charitable organizations at this time. You could donate money and you could sponsor a bed, for instance. That's how they would say you can sponsor a bed for a certain amount of time. So a lot of the money was raised through the public. And there was a lot of press around the Queen's Hospital. Of course they they weren't posting photos necessarily of these men in the way that you might see the men with the missing limbs in newspapers at this time. But there was a lot of press around the work that Gillies and his team were able to do, these miracle workers, as they were called, which I also assume brought in funds as well at the time. So it was, you know, public funds, the war office. But yeah, I mean, these operations as well, remember, went beyond the war because the war wasn't over for these men, even when the war was actually over. So they continued to be operated on. Long after the guns fell silent on the Western Front, so it was an expensive and intensive labor to undertake at the time.
0: I mean, it was also one that, that, dispiritingly, was often sort of futile. I mean, as you say, there there was great appetite mm-hmm. for them to be sort of fixed up or half fixed up, and then as happened to your, you know, protagonist or one of your protagonists, you know, Percy. They get discharged early and sent right back into the meat ground of the Western Front, didn't they?
1: Yeah, you know, this was one of the sort of grim realizations I came to during my research people gravitate towards the positive message that all of these medical advances came out of the First World War. You don't just have the birth of plastic surgery and facial reconstruction this time. You have advances in anesthesia that happen in parallel. You have advances in blood transfusions. In fact, the first blood banks appear in empty shell casings near the Western Front. And as wonderful as all of this is, I did come to that grim realization halfway through my research that these advances also serve to prolong the war because as doctors and nurses got better at patching these men up, Of course, they were being sent back to the front. They were feeding the war machine, and it was a vicious cycle. And I think especially now with the return of old-school warfare in Europe, we need to acknowledge that aspect of the story. Gillies himself, there was that tension between duty to the army and duty to his patients, At the beginning of the war, there wasn't a huge appetite to return the facially wounded back to the trenches because it felt the army felt that that would have a knock-on on on the morale of the men to see these disfigured soldiers. But later, they just needed men. And so absolutely some of these soldiers that Gillies worked on were sent back. Some of them even died. You know, there was one soldier I talk about in The Facemaker who ended up dying in the same casualty clearing station that he had originally been brought. He was shot in the knee and he ended up bleeding out. So it could be very tragic and probably very deeply frustrating for someone like Harold Gillies.
0: You talk about the, you know, this going on sort of after the war. How much longer did the Gillies show stay on the road? And a kind of intriguing postscript to it, you know, what yeah. do you do next?
1: Right. Well, so, you know, because I write narrative nonfiction, the book really focuses heavily on that arc in World War One. But of course, as you say, it continued after the war. Now, when the war ends, Gillies is also faced with this decision about whether he continues to pursue plastic surgery as a subspecialty of medicine because at this time it wasn't really an established discipline. So he continues to operate on the soldiers who were wounded during the First World War. He begins to branch out into cosmetic surgery. Now people have to remember too that plastic surgery is a heading underneath. You have reconstructive surgery as well as cosmetic. And even today, both of them continue to be important aspects of plastic surgery. So Gillies continues to reconstruct the soldiers. He also works on reconstruction faces of civilians. I talk about how in the 1920s, women started to remove facial hair with x-rays, which is a really bad idea. And it leads to well, terrible- Lady listeners,
0: just yes, take yeah, note.
1: Yeah, don't try x-rays for facial hair removal. And and so these women were getting cancer on their faces. And so these surgeons would go in and remove the cancer. And in the process, they would disfigure these women. And so Gillies would step in and try to help. So there's he was... an extraordinary
0: detail of one woman who, a surgeon removes the whole of her lower jaw to yes. get rid of the cancer and leaves her tongue hanging down her neck. And he afterwards goes, well, yeah, maybe I- I should have thought a bit more about the cosmetic implications of this. Well,
1: yeah, and he said that the nurses in the room, you know, looked like they wanted to kill him after that. But, you know, he had to remove the entire cancer. And, you know, I'm sure in that case, it was extensive. And he did save this woman's life, but she became very despondent because of the disfigurement that resulted. And so she ends up in Gilly's care and he helps restore her face. But he works on other civilian cases. There's a woman who has a seizure and she falls face first into an open fire. Her case was extreme. I did not include her photos in the book, but her face was extremely damaged, and he is able to rebuild a face. At a point of at sorts. which you sort
0: of went. Even though this book is not for the faint hearted, there's a kind of content warning on this one that goes beyond.
1: Well, I have to also say that, you know, I consulted with a disability activist about this book. And I want to say that the word disfigured might not be a word that people use today, but I really felt, and she agreed, that the word disfigured was appropriate here because these men were disfigured to the society they lived in. I didn't want to lessen that experience. The other thing was, you know, do you include photos? Now, I didn't want it to be medical voyeurism. Them, you know, looking for the sake of looking. So I really felt that the only patients who should be included were patients whose stories had actually been told in the face maker, had been given a lot of context. But there is an exception. I do not include photos of men who died in Gillies' care who couldn't complete that reconstructive process. So there is a pilot named Lumley who dies in Gillies' care. So I include a pre-injury photo of him and a diagram of what Gillies was trying to achieve. So I really wanted to have that balance. But again, I didn't want to put them on the metaphorical blue bench in 2020. I think that we need to look at their faces today, but I wanted to do that in a way that was respectful of their stories. How much, I mean, you know,
0: as you say, he he did take a sideline and partly to pay the bills in what we now think of as cosmetic surgery, which obviously is, is now a huge, huge industry. How much did Gillies' work in, in reconstructive surgery and the advances he made there kind of pave the way for the modern plastic surgery that? Yeah. So we see on Kim Kardashian.
1: I mean, (laughs) it's vital to establishing plastic surgery as its own discipline. And a lot of people ask me, especially in Britain, is this about the Guinea Pig Club? The Guinea Pig Club were the burn pilots of World War II. And they were operated on by a surgeon named Archibald McIndoe. And he was actually Harold Gillies' cousin. And it was Gillies who introduced McIndoe to the strange new art of plastic surgery. So there is a link there. So really, this book is the precursor to the Guinea Pig Club. But it's absolutely right in saying that he's sort of the grandfather of modern plastic surgery. And everything that sort of results with plastic surgery can go back to what Harold Gillies is essentially trying to do to establish it as a subspecialty itself. He wasn't against cosmetic surgery, although there was an aspect that he expanded into it to make money at first. He did believe that people had a right to control their identity, and he would say that reconstructive surgery was returning something to, quote, normal, whereas cosmetic surgery was about surpassing the normal, and he was excited by the challenges of both. What do you
0: think... You know, McIndo's work with the Guinea Pig Club has sort of or did eclipse Gillies's story, at least, you know, it was better remembered. Was that something about the difference of the times or was there a sort of literary adoption of it that gave it? Yeah,
1: I think there was there was an element that, you know, World War Two, there was a lot more media coverage. There was a romance around the pilots of that war. So I think that it just, as you say, it kind of eclipsed Gillies' work which is why I really set out to write The Facemaker, because I wanted to take that story right back to the beginning. Of course, Harold Gillies is known in academic circles and known to some extent outside of those academic circles. But, you know, especially in the U.S., where I've also published this book, he's not very well known. And I wanted people to know that story and to be able to connect with not just him, but with these men who's voices were really hidden at the time. And so I always say that I feel if people pick up the face maker, I hope they feel that I've not just done Gillies story justice, but also the disfigured soldiers stories justice as well.
0: Yeah. You said said that when you were in the UK, you met a descendant of Tonks. I mean, have you had contact with descendants of Gillies or with descendants of his patients who've been?
1: Yes. So actually it's really fun. So Harold Gillies has a very famous, great, great, nephew named Daniel Gillies. He's a Hollywood actor. He was in The Vampire Diaries, The Originals. He's been in a lot of different TV shows. And I just kind of joked online that he should do the Audible book because I thought this would be extraordinary. In fact, the butchering art is narrated by a voice actor named Ralph Lister, who just by sheer coincidence happened to be related to Joseph Lister. So this is kind of why I joked on Twitter, Daniel, you should do the Audible book. And he said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And so he actually narrates the Audible book. And I guess while he was recording it, he would pause occasionally and say, oh, I didn't know that about my ancestors. So it's been a real joy to see him bring this story to life, for him to learn about Harold Gillies through this book as well. I also at the Chalk Valley History Festival met someone who asked me to sign a book to Catherine. I said, why would Catherine like this book? And he said, well, she was one of Gilly's nurses in the 1950s. So those connections are still out there. And I'm going to be speaking at a lot more festivals in the coming months and weeks. And I'm looking forward to meeting other people who have personal connections to the face maker. Yes, there's a lovely anecdote you drop in. I don't, I mean,
0: I think you obviously found it in a diary and it's been too kind of Tempting not to put it in, but it's a a woman who goes to a fancy ball.
1: Is that right? And she
0: finds herself sitting next. She's she's Australian herself.
1: That's right. Yeah. So she's from New Zealand, where Gillies is from. I have to make that difference because the New Zealand are very proud of this and they should be proud that he comes from there. But I just did an interview with some press in New Zealand and they said that No matter how tenuous it is, even if he had just been born there and spent a day, we will claim our New Zealanders. So he was originally born in New Zealand and he came to Britain when he was 18 and was educated at Cambridge. And then he lived here for the rest of his life. But there is this story that I include in The Facemaker where this woman goes to a luncheon in Mayfair shortly after the war is over. And she's talking to a man next to her. And they bring up Harold Gillies' work because she is from New Zealand herself, and she is fascinated by this. And she's talking to this man as if he is Harold Gillies. And the man stops and says, Oh no, you've you've made a mistake. I'm actually one of his patients. And she is completely taken aback because in her mind, his face shows no evidence of any kind of surgery or disfigurement. So again, you know, you could really see the difference that he made. For some of these men and you know a lot of the photos the before and after photos they are quite stark in the facemaker. and some of those are the more extreme cases but of course there were cases where i can only imagine there was very little evidence that the patient even underwent surgery once it had all healed up
0: yes we were able to find out who that who that man at that lunch was
1: No, I wasn't able to find out. That was told through a very early biography of Harold Gillies by a man named Reginald Pound. And unfortunately, when those books were written in the 50s and 60s, they didn't have extensive notes about where, where they were getting some of that material. So I have to treat it. I have to treat his book almost as a primary source as a historian. But it was such a good story. I couldn't resist putting it in there because it, again, really, really underlines the kind of miraculous work that Gillies was able to do for his patients.
0: Was Gillies sort of recognised in his lifetime by the authorities? I mean, was he was he knighted? Was he given a some sort of
1: he was knighted? He was knighted a little bit late, in some people's opinion, that that wasn't recognised until you know, kind of well after the war. And actually, the title of The Facemaker, I really struggled with the title for this book. I went through a lot of different versions of titles, and I just couldn't come up with one. And it was when I was writing the apologue, and I came across a letter to Harold Gillies congratulating him on his knighthood, and it said, Dear Facemaker. And I thought, well, this is perfect, you know, because he was the facemaker. But titles are, it can be very tricky. Was, was that letter, I mean it wasn't a standard
0: epithet for him. It was somebody's nickname for him or it, Yes, him. it must've yeah.
1: been someone's nickname. I don't think that a lot of people called him that, but I just thought facemakers is so perfect, even though it's a made up term. Actually, it's gonna be interesting to see how the different covers evolve. So I have about 20 different translations of this book coming. Every foreign publisher comes up with their own covers. So the facemaker obviously won't translate that well into other languages. So it'll be interesting to see how this kind of evolves. The Dutch cover, which came out recently, it's very haunting. It's a black and white photo of a soldier, and they've taken his face out completely. So it's just a blank face, which I think is a really extraordinary cover as well. And I love the UK cover because it's an illustration of a Tommy with that you know, recognizable helmet, and his face is made up of many different faces. And again, that really captures the idea that this isn't just about one man, but it's about many men.
0: Well, it's a fascinating book, in any case. Lindsay Fitzharris, thank you very much indeed for your time.
1: Thank you so much.
0: The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, Please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK and our closing date is the 4th of July.